Ladies and gentlemen, we are officially live. Welcome back to the Sober Grind podcast. As always, my name is Austin, and I'm joined by Pej. We have an amazing topic for you today that hopefully is helpful for both you and your family. Get some clarity and get the help that you need. That's right. Today we're talking about addiction and alcoholism as a family disease. So Pej, why don't you explain a little bit uh, what that exactly means and maybe go into your history a little bit if you don't mind. Okay. So, you know, uh, obviously family dynamics, family disease, uh, when it comes to addiction, a lot of people think that it's just the addict that has the problem, mm-hmm. uh, the addict or the alcoholic that has the problem, and they don't realize that in reality, uh, it is a family disease. Yeah. Um, the addict and alcoholic obviously either comes from some kind of upbringing, whether it be around a family or certain people where they they uh, imitate their environment, you know, mm. or, or they act a certain way due to the fact that their environment may be uncomfortable. There may be a number of things that's going on in the household. There may be uh, violence. There may be a lot of verbal abuse. There may be actual um, trauma, you know, that, that people are dealing with in their household that, that is an ongoing thing where, you know, a lot of people may have sexual trauma. They may have, um, they may experiencing a lot of families arguing with each other, mm-hmm. going at it, um, um, and then... So they, they're raised in this type of environment, and what does somebody do to try to escape that? They may go after using and drinking. So in my case, like, for example, uh, I, I come from a Persian family, and, and growing up in that family, there was a lot of high expectations. You know, when you're a Persian, your parents usually want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And, and when you turn out to be a drug addict or a drug dealer or a drug dealer and a drug addict all in one, that's a total taboo in our community. So... Uh, you're, sure. you're looked down at, especially when mm. there's high expectations of you and who you are supposed to be, and then you go down that dark path. For one, a lot of uh, families, especially Persian families, don't want to believe that their kid is a full-blown addict alcoholic. For two, if they have any idea of it, they don't want anyone to catch wind of it because, you know, don't you know that we have large egos, so we don't want that to get out. We don't want people to find out that our uh, kids are on drugs or alcohol, so they try to hide it, you know, or they... They'll even um, be oblivious to it and kind of just pretend like, you know, there's an elephant in the room, but pretend like there's nothing really going on. Mm-hmm. So um, when I got sober, uh, the place that I went to, and I was blessed. Luckily, um, there was a, a very strong family program. It was a multicultural family program, right? Mm. And um, what was expected of the family members in order for them to be in the treatment process with their kids was that um, that they had to be just involved in recovery as uh, the, the you know, as the addict alcoholic, as I did, right? So um, it was funny, like our counselor would send people to certain particular meetings, recovery-based meetings for the families, okay. um, and they would have to get their their slip signed to prove that they were also involved in going to um, work on themselves and their own personal issues. That way, when they come together um, to be with, with us, the addicts, alcoholics that were in treatment, um, the scale isn't you know, shifting to where we're getting more recovery and they're not wanting to be able to be even so that we can all kind of work together in union. So it's, you think it's a necessity to really have the family involved to ensure the success. It is absolutely necessary. Uh, The problem is, is that a lot of people don't get well because the families Mm. don't get well. Right. You know, a lot of uh, people, they go into recovery and sure, like they're out of their element. So they're, they're in a whole different environment. They're around a lot of people that are 
you know, recovery based. They have a new support system and it's all good. It's all strong. But um, the second that they're getting out of treatment, if they go back to the same environment, the old environment, back to their family's homes, you know, to wherever that may be, mm-hmm. it's like going right back into the lion's den. It's where they used yeah. to use, where they used to drink, where they used to experience all the turmoil. Uh, the arguments are there, the blaming, the shaming, all of that stuff that goes on. So they go right back into that. And what, I mean, what, what do they know better than to, you know, end up using and drinking again? Because they don't know how to, how to process those emotions. You know, not everybody gets well when they go to treatment. And then when the families don't get well at all or the families are still the same, then you go and be around that. Um, it's very likely that a lot of that relapse rate will increase due to the fact that um, there's no family work done. So yeah, Makes it is sense. a total family disease. What's your name and, and how long have you been sober now? My name is Laura Reeves and I've been sober three years. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Can you, uh, as much as you feel comfortable, could you tell me a little bit about your recovery journey and ultimately what made you decide that it was time to make a change in your life? Yeah, definitely. So um, my recovery, so I I started recovery when I was 18. Hmm. Um, I... I started out around around 14 or 15, just dabbling with bulimia uh-huh. and anorexia. Mm-hmm. And um, the levy basically broke around 18, and I needed to be um, hospitalized, and I mm-hmm. needed to go to rehab. And in 1999, they didn't have 12-step programs. For anorexia and bulimia, they had mm. OA, uh-huh. but they they didn't have what they have now, which is like ABA and EDA for eating disorders. Yeah. So um, at at 18 years old, I did a program called ANAD, and um, that's pretty much when my recovery story starts. So it wasn't a 12 step program; it was just a, a program of meetings without the steps. Hmm. And I would continue to do that until I was about 22 years old. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided, you know, I'll, um, I'll start drinking. Now, like, before that, like, I would I would smoke pot, at, you know, kind of casually, maybe mm-hmm. a little bit too much. Sure. I would... I wouldn't drink very much because, um, honestly, I thought I thought if I drank, I would get fat, so mm. I stayed away gotcha. from drinking. Mm-hmm. But when I decided I'd start drinking, like I, it was immediately, like it started immediately. Like I couldn't drink like a lady. Like I couldn't eat like a lady. I couldn't <laughs> drink like a lady. It was very obvious. Mm. Um, and at that time, I had about four years of sobriety from my eating disorder and it became very apparent very quickly that um I was binge drinking. I was using alcohol the same way that I was using my eating disorder and I kind of got a case of the fuck it. Like Mm -hmm. if I'm going to drink the same way that I use an eating disorder, then I'm going to just 
do both. Mm-hmm. So um, gotcha. I started, I relapsed in my eating disorder and I started drinking um, alcoholically as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where, that's where that um, kind of took off. And it wouldn't be, it would be about like, you know, typical story, you know, like about 10 years of doing, just living a life like where I was never sober. You know, right. if I wasn't drinking, I was using my eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So I w- I didn't have like a sober breath, you know, like, mm-hmm. so 10 years of that and I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, I got into recovery because I knew I had an issue with my eating disorder. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just thought I was an anorexic and bulimic. Mm-hmm. And um, I, my last year of drinking, I ended up in the hospital 12 times with alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. And the last time I came in um, just beaten up, like literally somebody had beaten me up. Mm-hmm. And I remember... <laughs> I remember the look on my dad's face, like, like he just couldn't take it anymore, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, so I don't know, something, I was like, I just can't do this anymore. I can't do this to my family anymore. Mm-hmm. So it was either suicide or rehab. And, mm-hmm. um, rehab wasn't my first choice, but, um, my friends and my family had a different idea. Mm-hmm. So at 33, I got myself into rehab, and I um I had I had enough humiliation that I could listen to uh, what people in in the meetings and AA were saying about um, getting a sponsor and doing the mm-hmm. steps, and mm-hmm. it wasn't my first time um, going to AA. I had been to a few meetings before, so I knew a little bit about the steps. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how I really got in there. It was just, honestly, humili- being humiliated enough mm. gotcha. got me got me into recovery. But really just um, knowing that I had an eating disorder and not wanting to be an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, th- thank you so much for for sharing that uh, your experience and your journey. Mhm. Yeah. Um, can you think of any words of encouragement or things you would say for listeners uh, of this podcast who are either struggling themselves with addiction, or maybe it's a loved one, maybe they're a parent. Um, they have a child or, or someone they know that's close to them that's struggling with addiction. Do you have any words of, of encouragement or, or motivation at all from your perspective? Well, I do like that question. <laughs> I, feel like I, need to be, I feel like I need to be better prepared. Um, you know, as far as parents go, I think the best thing a parent can do is lead by example. Mm-hmm. Um especially when it comes to self-image and confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I get asked that a lot with my eating disorder sponsees, uh, with, with their parents. What can I do? Um, and 
the best thing they can do is is lead by example, you know, show their daughters and their sons, you know, what it looks like to love their bodies, to have confidence um, with their Mm -hmm. self-worth. You know, if we can, we can start with ourselves. um, That's the best, the best thing we could do is just have our own confidence and self-worth and really love our God-given bodies. It's such a... Mm -hmm simple thing I think that gets missed. Yeah, absolutely. um, As far as coming into recovery, I am, when I got into recovery, I focused on the, um, the alcoholism uh, first, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the primary disease that I, Mm -hmm. and those steps, that um, I felt like it was so hard to stop drinking. Yeah. You know, and it was mm-hmm. so hard. You know, I can't say, I can't say um, my biggest advice is, and I'm sure people say it all the time, but like, you know, get a sponsor and do the steps. And that seems so simple, but it's like the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. If it just works, it works, right? It works. It definitely yeah. works. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I'm learning um, now in my three years is using my voice in meetings to mm-hmm. continually reintroduce myself mm. and story. Um, the po- there's so much power in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, especially, especially with. Um, with eating disorders, there's not a lot of meetings. So I know we get taught in AA that we shouldn't be talking about cross addictions, but um, I don't know. I might get a lot of flack for this, but I say go for it. You know, <laughs> you might you might have somebody like me in that meeting who yeah, sure. uh, hears you and will be willing to sponsor you. So mm-hmm. you know, don't be afraid to say you're struggling with, you know, some, like a cross addiction, mm-hmm. there's always people out there willing to listen and willing to help. And, um, I don't know. I think the best thing my sponsor ever taught me was the importance of the morning routine. Mm, yeah, it's so me, important. me, that looks like writing, mm. prayer, and meditation, mm-hmm. and, um, I don't know. Every day I still do that, even when I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you uh, so much for taking the time to to speak with me and, and share your journey, share your experience, and share your advice. You're very welcome. Can we talk a little bit about um, enabling? When does that kind of come into the picture? And what what is the... <sighs> If you're a parent of an addicted loved one, mm-hmm. how do you know that you're enabling? When does it become enabling and what you, should you kind of pay attention to? Well, often a lot of parents are very oblivious to the fact that they're enabling. They yeah, may sure. not even know the term you yeah. know, until they do it enough times and then they try to get their help, their, their kids' help, and they, they learn this term enabling. And sometimes they go right back to enabling. Mm. They're very comfortable in doing that. They, a lot of parents uh, like to be in control. 
They want to make sure that they have their eye on their kid. They want to make sure that um, they, they're keeping track of their kid. And, and by doing that, they're harboring basically somebody who's in their addiction at their homes, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's very sad because that's exactly what is keeping kids back. See, a lot of kids are – there's all different types of kids, and they're raised in different type of family units. Mm-hmm. Some are raised in very wealthy households. Some are raised in average uh, households, and some are raised in poor households. Yeah. Um, no matter what, though, whatever's going on in that kid's life, when, they're, uh, when they get into addiction or when they get into alcoholism and they're still living at their parents' house but they're living that same lifestyle, um, if nobody does anything about that, you're basically uh, putting fuel in their fire. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of the kids, they, they, um, they don't move forward in life. They don't get desperate enough to the point where they can seek recovery because the parents won't let them. Uh, it's, it's all too often where I see... Uh, no growth in somebody who is even introduced to recovery because their parents just continue to enable them. Mm-hmm. I mean, let me just say this right now. In the last couple of days, I've been working on a few different cases. I've been doing some interventions with families that uh, we we get it all set up. We have it all going fine and dandy. Everything's going good. Family says they're on board with everything, with mm-hmm. everything, right? To the point where we even have put somebody in treatment. But unfortunately, when the person gets out of treatment... Uh, the family suddenly, even though they promise that they'll do everything that we say, they totally go against it. And they um, they let their kid come back into their house because they feel like uh, uh, if they don't have their eye on the kid, that the kid may go out and die. You right. know? But in reality is when you're keeping the kid in your house and the kid is still using and drinking or begins to start using and drinking again, you bring them back in there. It's not like they're not dying in your house. They're dying slowly, right? Right. So you're enabling them. And and it's sad and it's scary because um, all too often we hear that somebody um, overdoses in their parents' house. You know, and why is that? Because that that kid, even with all the different things that you've been suspicious about, is getting away with uh, still staying at your house, um, uh, retreats to the bathroom all too often, mm-hmm. is in there for hours, and you're always wondering, what is he doing in there? What is she doing in there? Well, you know, if you've if you found certain things like uh, burnt tin foil or burnt spoons or uh, needles, for that yeah. matter, there's a serious problem going on here. Mm-hmm. And if you're keeping that person in your house without actually addressing the problem and getting them the proper appropriate help, then uh, you're enabling them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's dive into. Uh, before we get to the questions, keep leaving the questions, guys. We will get to them, I promise you. Um, let's talk about interventions a little bit. I know you you work a lot in, in that field. You do a lot of interventions. Right. What do you when do you feel that it's necessary to for a parent to reach out to a professional interventionist and w- dive into a little bit about your experience, what what you've seen, how that helps families. Okay, that's a, thank you for asking me that, that question. Absolutely. I think that since Earl's watching me, he is my supervisor. He's, <laughs> the, one, he's the master interventionist. Hello, I, Earl. Earl, if you're watching, we need to get you on the show. We're going to do it. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get you <laughs> we'll on get here. get you back on here. But, um, <laughs> so usually, you know, uh, there's a lot of times when families actually do a family intervention. Right. Mm-hmm. I hear about people going to treatment or going and seeking uh, recovery because the family comes together and they, they try to intervene on their loved one. Um, sometimes, you know, families don't know how to go about it. Mm-hmm. They can uh, cause a ruckus within the intervention within themselves if it's just done by somebody who's mm-hmm. not a professional yeah. because there's nobody to really be a mediator to, to kind of like tailor the whole thing from start to finish and show them how to go about it and the do's and the don'ts and what to say and what not to say because 
you know, you, you say the wrong things or, or you if you actually come into it like angry or mm. or trying to go sure. at the, the individual, you're probably not hurt, helping them much. You're hurting them more mm. or you're scaring them off or you're, you know, and then on top of it, you have an enabling person that keeps on letting that person stay. Well, everything you're trying to do for this person is not going to help them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes people, families, they run out of options. So what do they do? The best thing that they, they can do is to reach out for somebody to be an interventionist, somebody mm -hmm. who's actually a professional who's who's been trained in this type of work and who can come in and, and, and set it all up in advance and know the person's history and get the scenario and get the family history and see how the family members have been affected and who would be effective to be in the intervention and how they can get that, you know, everybody to have, to get all their ducks in a row. Everybody be everybody needs to be on the same page right. in order for uh, it to be an effective intervention. And an intervention has never failed. Even if the person mm -hmm. doesn't get the actual help or, or go into treatment or whatnot, um, as long as the intervention is happening, it plants a seed within the individual that yeah. you need help. Absolutely. And maybe your life is not really working out for you and uh, you, you might want to think about getting help. But also, um, in order for an intervention to be really solid and to really work is if the family becomes firm. Mm. You know, there's a way to be uh, very serious but go about it in grace. In other mm -hmm. words, you give them options and the, the way the interventionist can tailor that is by saying, look, these things aren't working for you in your life and we can't keep on keeping you in the house. You either, you, you got to make a decision here. And this is like, you know, your turning point. You can either get the help and we will provide you with the appropriate place through the interventionist. They'll, they'll set it all up for you or you have to go, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the toughest thing for parents that, um, and I was I was just talking to, to Tom this morning about, you know, he said if it was my daughter too, like it would be really hard for me to, to see her hit the Absolutely. streets. You know, obviously um, no family wants to see their kid dying out on the streets or right. get that call where yeah. the person has passed away. But once again, you know, keeping them in the house isn't going to save them either. They'll never grow if you don't let them go. So um, an interventionist can help with all of that. And um, often, you know, they, people need to... to find the appropriate interventions. There's a lot of people out there that call themselves intervention, interventionists, and there are actual people that are doing really good work out there, and mm -hmm. I know who some of them are. Thank you for that, Pesh. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a moment here. We're going to read some questions. Uh, if you want to learn more about interventions, we, we actually have an earlier entire episode about it, um, so check that out. Click the link in the description to learn about uh, more about all the um the finer aspects of interventions, or you can always reach out to Pej, give him a call. Um, all right, let's see. So Tina says, how can you find a program in your state that incorporates the whole family? A program that, okay, so as far as like a treatment type of program, I would imagine she's asking, um, this is a good question. You know what you could do is you could contact me and I could try to find you something that's appropriate in your state, whether it be an outpatient service, you know, I could actually do a little bit of research or have somebody from my team take a look and see what state you're in and see, um, we could reach out to the to certain individuals. We have a lot of connections in different states, you know, so there, there may be an outpatient where that provides a family program. Mm. Those are always really effective or an actual center. And, and then we could see how you can go about that and getting into there, whether you um, bring your uh, loved one in as a patient and work together or just do it, you know, as an out, on an outpatient basis. That's great. Thanks um, for the question, Tina. 
Yeah, thank you for these questions, everyone. Uh, Solange says, I hope I pronounced that right. All I see in families is materialism over love. Unfortunately, sometimes. I mean, with yeah. a lot of families, that's true. Yeah. 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 Let's see. Lori says, I'm experiencing that materialism over love right now with my mother. It's heartbreaking. I'm sure. Yeah. It's all too common. Yeah. Keith says, what's up? <laughs> what's up, Keith? What's Jeff saying? Jeff says, Pej, a friend of mine has stage four cancer, currently in hospice. Can you all believe and pray that God will take away the cancer and take him quickly so he doesn't suffer? Absolutely. We, your friend is in our thoughts. I'm praying for Jeff. I'm praying for your friend. Uh, I myself beat cancer last year. Mm. Um, you know, it's possible. Amazing. God is big. Absolutely. Let's see. Glory says, Jeff, I will pray for your friend. That's awesome. Let's all help each other out with this. Okay, Keith says... With sh without, without sugar, sugar coating it, yet. most times the family needs an intervention themselves because they have no idea that oftentimes they are a huge problem as well as addicted party needing the help. Perfectly said. So I want to... Let me real quick get into that. So, um, yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'm just going to say this right now. There's, uh, like I was just saying a second ago, there's a couple of families that I've been working with lately mm -hmm. where um, uh, they'll, they'll take all the instructions... You know, at face value, they'll be like, okay, sure, yes, I'll do this. Yeah, no problem. You got it. You have my word. You have my word. You have my word. All of a sudden, there's a sudden shift. Mm. We we get them to a certain point where everything is going in the right direction, and all of a sudden, they will completely change their tune. So what wow. will happen, because maybe somebody in the family, from what, just out of experience with some of the people I've been working with, Somebody in the family suddenly thinks, no, maybe this isn't a good idea. Um, let's hold back. Maybe they mm. don't need to go to treatment. Let's keep them in the house. They're mm. doing better right now. They're behaving. Addicts and alcoholics are manipulative. Yeah. Let's not forget. A they know how to behave. They know how to act right. So mm -hmm. somebody will, so will shift the two, or they'll say, let, let us find them the place, right. and you can still come in and do the intervention. Well, now mm -hmm. you're taking over. Right. You're basically trying to dictate how to do the intervention. So that's the time when we have to actually move in. And now we're, we're not thinking about the addict alcoholic. They are who they are and they will be who they will be, mm -hmm. right? Now we need to intervene on the actual family members. And, mm. and the family members are often, you know. A little harder, a little more I, difficult. I, I'm trying to use the right words. I don't want <laughs> The family members mm -hmm. are often extremely codependent. Okay. <laughs> Let's just keep it in clinical terms. They're very codependent, mm -hmm. so they they just have this thing about them where um, if 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 they don't get what they want, they're not going to be happy, and usually they're never happy, right? Mm -hmm. So even if we put the person in treatment, the family members sometimes are falling apart. I'll say this right now: family members need to work on themselves for mm -hmm. their own problems. There's sometimes the family members are extremely addicted to their addict alcoholic loved one, right? Yeah. It's just plain as day. That's it's simple. It's that's the way it is. But they don't see it. You know what I mean? And and they're they're trying to fill something within themselves by by constantly saving their, their child. They think that they're saving their child, but really they're not helping them. They're hurting them more. So um, we've we've had to intervene. We've actually had to put family members in in their own respective form of treatment, whether it be for codependency. I've seen yeah. people go into treatment for primary codependency. Mm -hmm. You know, people that are just overly codependent to the point where it's dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, families need to be intervened on all the time, especially when they want to 
switch the tune of an actual intervention for somebody that needs help. Mm, gotcha. See, the, the coffee just hit me on that one because I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we covered a lot of ground today. Um, thank you all for your questions. If you're listening to this after the fact or or if you're watching this video or wherever, continue to leave your questions or email them to us. We'd love to answer them in in a future episode. Uh, maybe even do uh, do a specific topic on, on your questions if you have suggestions. Mm. Uh, so send us an email either at pej, P-E-J, at beginningstreatment.com or myself, Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N, at beginningstreatment.com, and we would love to help you. Uh, that is our mission. That's why we're doing this, to spread awareness and to help as many people as possible. Right. There's two more things I wanted to mention. Oh yeah, yeah, please. So we have another. We have a Facebook page called Ask an Addiction Specialist. You Absolutely. You didn't talk about this already, right? Not yet. Okay, no. so it's a Facebook page. It's right. It's in the little bar right there. It's actually written down. The, it, the link. Uh, is I believe it. it's in the description. If it's you, not, you let can me always know, type or... in Ask an Addiction Specialist. Yeah. You can come on there at any given time, whether you're in your own addiction, whether you are newly sober, whether you have a loved one, a family member that's suffering from addiction. You can come on to our page, Ask an Addiction Specialist on Facebook, and ask any questions that you want. We always have a professional that will be, you know, in a timely manner, they'll get to you and they will mm -hmm. will answer your questions, however that may be. There's also people in recovery that are on that page that have some experience with recovery mm -hmm. that they would be happy to ask answer any questions that you have. On top of that, April 13th, 14th, and mm, 15th. Yes. If, if you are a person that has been sober for a while or mm -hmm. whether you are or not, even if you aren't, you know, if you are totally normal but you want to help people, and you want to become an interventionist, um, we are hosting, Beginnings Treatment Center is hosting in Orange County, California, uh, an intervention training uh, by Earl Hightower where you can receive... It's going to be amazing. 30 units towards becoming wow. a uh, certified interventionist. And wow. you will also receive two years of supervision by Earl. You can go ahead and send me a message and I'll tell you about the costs and all that. But it's coming up on April 13th, 14th, and 15th in Orange County, California, Santa Ana, California. Um, that's where the training will be. So if you are, if you ever like think about becoming an interventionist, I think it would be an ideal thing for you to sign up and uh, be taught by the best of the best. Yeah, so how quick is that filling up, by the way? It's, it's Pretty, filling up, but there's some there's some open slots. Some still. open slots? So right. yeah. Just, don't wait, just in case. You don't yeah. want it to fill up. Yeah, let me know. Love to hook you up. Awesome. Well, thank you all again so much, as always, for checking out the Sober Grind podcast, whether you're watching this live, watching the video, or listening to it anywhere on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you prefer your podcasts. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you again. Thank you.